Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this July 2019 episode of Buildings on Air. Buildings on Air, of course, is the show where we talk about architecture, left politics, sometimes more of one, less of the other. Um, and I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. Another thing we talk about on Buildings on Air, if uh, history is any indication, is a little sprinkling of European sports. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, there it's may be something I have to do with the station manager's uh, yeah. uh, overseas uh, <laughs> or points of origin. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, Tour de France started today. Is That's right. And yeah. you know that actually, uh, I think both Liverpool and Arsenal played their first preseason friendlies ah. today because Arsenal played Borum Wood. Yeah, yeah, it's a team that I hadn't heard of, <laughs> but but it popped up on that little box I have that gives me mysterious things. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. the tour the tour stage was great. Yeah, tour Mike, stage, Mike Tenason. Yeah, yeah, and of course Wimbledon's on. I know you're not a huge no. Wimbledon fan, but but you know, Andy, come on, it's quite good. Yeah, well, I, okay. have you been watching? Had you seen Coco Golf play? No, that, that's quite entertaining. The 15 year old uh, girl from uh, Delray Beach, Florida, who was oh. uh, unqualified. Uh, then got a, a buy into the tournament. And now she's knocked off three professionals, and she's in the round of sixteen. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, what a story it is. Yeah. See, that's the kind of stories Wimbledon gives you. Yeah, there we go. That's mm. that's nice. I could I could get into that. Yeah. Uh, well, sports aside, we've got a great show lined up for you. Uh, starting, uh, we we talk with Keith Rosenthal, who's here in the studio. Uh, we're going to be talking about sort of capitalism, disability, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and uh, Marta Russell. Uh, then, uh, in our regular segment, Fun and Angry with Andrew Lee Rao, uh, we um, are going to talk about a couple of articles. One that was in Forbes about parametricism, which is totally wild. And then another one, which we are very interested. This is the, 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 the fun one, <laughs> not the one that makes us angry. It will be about participatory planning in Berlin. Um, and then last, we're going to open up our mailbag uh, with Ann and Craig from Future Firm. So that's the rundown. Uh, I've got Keith in the studio. Keith Rosenthal, how's it going? Going well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for uh, being on the show. Uh, you know, last year um, we had a couple of folks come over from the Socialism Conference, which happens every year around this time. Um, and so I'm happy that we could snag you from the conference <laughs> today. Uh, you had your talk this morning, um, I, which, which I, I missed, but I, I'm, I'm hoping to hear about. Uh, and then um, tomorrow, if folks are interested, it's, it's ongoing. Um, and I think there's, there's some big names tomorrow. I think da- David Harvey will be in the house, Naomi Klein, uh, pretty neat. Um, so... Um, but I'm happy we could steal you away from the conference proceedings for a little bit to, to chat about this stuff. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Yeah, so, um, and I'm, I'm excited to have you on this show because, you know, architects, we often think about the ADA, and for us, um, it's this kind of piece of legislation that means we have to do sort of like ramps and <laughs> things with sort of um, enunciators and like emergency blinkers. We really think about like sort of, Accessibility, um, and and I and I think that you know your sort of work um, and activism is really about like how there's so much more to the ADA than this, and it's not all good. <laughs> so um, and and I think I'm I'm really curious to kind of talk about the relationship between sort of disability rights and activism and capitalism in the kind of expanded field. And I, I hope our audience will kind of uh, have like a, a better context for understanding like the work that we do as architects in relation to, to that set of concerns. Yeah. Um, and this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I have to 
say it or it'll just be sitting on my brain. But yeah. Borum Wood would be a great porn name. <laughs> That's true. Now it's out there. I don't have to think about probably it anymore. Probably would be. Yeah. It probably, probably would be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> Sorry. No. No, you're totally right. <laughs> this, you know, this may be the fastest that Buildings on Air has gone off the rails. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I, yeah. 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 It's good. It only took um, uh, four minutes and 49 <laughs> seconds. That's good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, t- I told Keith, I was, you know, the, the show, the, t- uh, the tone of the show is quite casual. It is quite casual. We, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's true. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Yeah. yeah. So I'm enjoying myself so far. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> What was your question? <laughs> yeah, so the question was like, um, so just like, yeah, t- right, tell yeah, us yeah. about tell us about the ADA. Tell us about sort of how how you have entered into this kind of, like thinking about disability and capitalism yeah. and sort of how how you think about it. Maybe in 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 relation to kind of the the mainstream body of thought yeah. on this. Um, well, I guess I'll start by um, yeah. Let's talk about just disability as a uh, as a phenomenon yeah um, um, yeah I think most people are um, more familiar with it as a sort of uh, personal individual or medical concepts not yeah. usually thought of in particularly political mm-hmm. terms um, it's something that you may be give donations to um, or, you know, there's various medical research, things like that, which sure. are all great. Yeah. Um, but I think that there is a there is a, tr- uh, a radical political tradition of uh, disabled activists um, who have attempted to raise it as a political mm. demand, somewhat akin to um, the uh, civil rights movement for uh, black rights or for women's rights, mm-hmm. gay rights, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, in, a, in a you know to summarize it or um, you know to give a brief you know sense of it, basically the notion is that disability is something that um, is both a historically fluid and mm. conditioned, and um, b is a function of the social relations, uh, material environment, mm-hmm. um, economic conditions of society sure. that disable one who has um, a various impairment of some sort. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, cut me off if I'm no, going no. too long on one thing. But, no. Um, yeah, that's a more that, that that notion that we have today of disability is a more uh, recent phenomenon. You know, dating back historically um, to like, I mean, you can go way back to various nomadic hunter-gatherer societies or feudal societies in which you have a bunch of peasant families more or less working together on a plot of land. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't the same kind of regimented and exact, precise tailorized work yeah. as you have today. Um, there was a division of labor that was more or less decided by the given tribe or clan or family. Right. Um, there were certainly differences in abilities. There were certainly all kinds of um, you know, superstitions and you know, abusive <laughs> behavior. Sure. Um, but you didn't have the systematic segregation and categorization of people based upon yeah. a given... Uh, 
quote-unquote abnormality. Right. You had people that contributed in whatever way they could right. um, to, you know, the family's wealth or the tribe's wealth or the clan's wealth. Right. And, I mean, it wasn't like a kind of situation where you were like in or out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Everyone, you know, because, I mean, there was no basis to really do that. Right. And again, uh, you know, abuses did take place. They happened, um, you know, but uh, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't like we have today yeah. where it's a categorical, legal, you know, separation. Um, and what happens with the emergence of industrial capitalism, factory wage labor, a very particular kind? Yeah. Um, well, two things happen. One, you know, and this is something that uh, the preeminent, you know, uh, uh, analyst of capital, mm-hmm. Mark Karl Marx, <laughs> talks about. The man himself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, is that so uh, it was necessary to create a proletariat, so dispossession uh-huh. um, of peasant lands, you know, uh, alienating them from the tools and resources of production and um, forcing them to go work in these, like, hell holes. I mean, sure. we all are, are, are now familiar, whether it's, I mean, we're, you know, it's, it, it's a trope now that, you know, the industrial, the emergence of the industrial revolution, industrial was, was just, like, hellscapes of, you know, these satanic mills and, you know, yeah. Like um, child labor. Oh, and, yeah, just everything. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, it was the state comes in and passes a bunch of laws saying that if you are a vagabond, if you're begging on the street, one offense, you know, you get thrown into the workhouse, two offenses, you know, you're um, branded, three, you know, they'll execute you. I mean, yeah. and these are laws that in the uh, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically it was an attempt to force people into these situations who didn't want to. Now, the only exception to that that's written into a lot of these codes is those who are deemed unable yeah. to engage in this modern form of production. That, and what that means additionally is that the, the owners of these mills, these factories, the, the, the owners of this capital, capitalists, yeah. deemed a person uh, insufficiently profitable, right? Because the whole sure. notion is that you need someone who's going to be able to pump out a certain number of commodities Right. So that you not only get a return on your vest- investment, but uh, a gain at a profit. Yeah. And if it was deemed that somebody was not sufficiently productive in that regard, then it would be a liability rather than an asset to sure. the employer. And so that person was given, uh, you know, the the privilege, quote unquote, of right. not working. But that uh, what came with it was then utter marginalization, segregation. And that's where you have the, you know, you begin to have asylums and these institutions and, um, you know, really the first forms of carceral, you know, uh, institutions yeah. for disabled people, for feeble mind. And they came, you know, a whole list of feeble mind, epilepsy, any of these things. You start having the warehousing of people. Um, and that's that's really the origins of, of where all this stuff comes from. And then it just, you know, takes on a more and more um, scientific and yeah, or, you know, like it's pseudo-scient- a pseudoscientific, yeah. um, a more precise categorization and um, of separating out. I mean, even so you look at today, you know, written into U.S. Social Security law that to be, I mean, it's uh, as defined in, you know, U.S. code, to be disabled is to be uh, unable to engage in uh, what they call it, gainful uh, employment. <laughs> Yeah. In other words, that's what so disability is um, defined in relation to 
wage labor under conditions right. of capitalist accumulation and production. Right. You know, and so that's I think gives a sense of what we begin to talk about when we talk about disability as a political and historical, um, yeah. rather than a sort of like just some people are different, you <laughs> right? Know? Or or even just like a, a strictly sort of like ethical commitment. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Yeah, so and it's I, I had never sort of thought about it in relation to tailorization before. Yeah. It makes total sense, and 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 the pseudoscience as well as sort of um, eugenics and these oh, yeah. kind of awful awful chapters. Right. It makes total sense that they emerged at that at yeah. a time at, the, at a time when industrialization is sort of really like hitting its pinnacle yeah. um, in the places where it's hitting its pinnacle. Yeah, that's um, yeah, and so uh, and then the you know extreme. Of that um, that we saw throughout Europe, but actually, you know, began first in America was the yeah eugenics movement and the sterilization of disabled people. Yeah, which um, you know came to so, so basically the you know the um, if we uh, you know start from the basis that okay here's people who are not uh, useful to the capitalist productive process, mm-hmm. you know they're basically come to increasingly be seen as just you know, uh, waste, you know, like uh, a, a uh, what's the word, just like surplus people. Sure. Superfluous humans. Right. Who have no value. Right. So that's so, so the, so the system, the economic system. Um, so one is warehousing them in times of crisis, either as a scapegoat mm. or as a way of saving money on the budget. You know, why? I mean, and you hear it today, you hear it all the time from, you know, more conservative when they talk about, you know, when you really get into people who are like committed to their, their yeah. conservatism, you know, they'll admit they're they'll sort of, uh, you know, concede their, uh, you know, their, their inner thought that, yeah, well, if somebody is disabled and just a, a drain on the system. Like, why are we paying money to keep them alive? Right. Pay for their health care or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's and that's the essential like social Darwinist competitive survival of the fittest ethic at the heart of capitalism that, you know, the weak just sure. will fall away and the strong will, you know, and that ultimately, yeah, and it's extreme leads to these just, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, just, you know, sure. massive killings. Um, but yeah, in this country is where it first started, the mm-hmm. sterilization laws, which uh, starting in 1907 in Indiana and then uh, uh, an additional 33 states wow. by the 1920s had laws calling for the involuntary sterilization of huge, like, feeble-mindedness, epilepsy, um, physical deformities. Including here um, in Illinois, we should point out. Yes. Illinois was one of the leading states that did that. Yeah, And exactly. Chicago was one of the centers where uh, people did eugenic studies over at the University of Chicago, which I'm sure yeah. you would you would bring up and note in your book. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah the, the U.S. became sort of uh, the model for these laws. In fact... Um, I I had never read Hitler's Mein Kampf, and I don't necessarily recommend that you do. But you know, <laughs> out of curiosity, sure, to give it a, give it a look yeah. to see what you know evils abound. But yeah, Hitler in Mein Kampf says we need to do what the U.S. is doing, right. what they're doing in terms of racial segre- racial you know segregation along natural hierarchies, what they're doing in terms of their sterilization laws. Yeah. Like we need that here. Yeah. And so the U.S. really pioneered that. Yeah. Um, went up to the, even went to the Supreme Court in 1927. Um, the Supreme Court, there was a r- ruling, uh, this woman, uh, Carrie Buck, 
who was on received welfare assistance and um, had a child. Um, and uh, the, ju- the Supreme Court ruled that um, the state has an interest in involuntarily sterilizing this person yeah. so that they no longer produce uh, public charges, feeble-minded public charges, because yeah. two of her previous children had disabilities. Ironically, the, uh, the child in question um, turned out to not have any disability, um, the, but the, the one who prompted the case. But, um, and this, yes, the Supreme Court, and, and actually to this day, that's never been overruled. Um, oh, wow. In the 1970s, I forget the exact date, what there was was there was an executive order that said that uh, any institution that receives federal funding mm-hmm. can't engage in involuntary sterilization. But uh, it is the, the notion that a private agency or hospital can engage in that it's, or a state, yeah. you know, that, that is yet to be overturned. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And uh, so that, but that's the extreme, right? Yeah, that's, sure. where, that's where it can lead in times of crisis or scapegoating. Yeah. So, I mean, fast forward to today and uh, like, you know, f- fortunately, like we don't ha- we don't have that context anymore right. of, of sort of like really aggressively sort of uh, like awful uh, policies. Yeah. And um, that's been hard won. I mean, that, that wasn't just like a thing that that happened. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So yeah. so so going yeah. from this really um, uh, horrifying yeah. history of sort of eugenics and sterilization. Yeah. The, so h- how do we get from something so awful yeah. to today? Not yeah. that today is like good, but right. it, but if it's a lot better yeah. than that. <laughs> yeah. Today is better than that. There's also been some, uh, you know, some uh, retreats. Yeah. Some loss. I think especially. Um, as we enter a time of like, you know, protracted economic precariousness and sure. budget, you know, time of austere budget cuts. Yeah. There's mo- there's been over the last couple of years more and more cuts to um, Medicaid, healthcare, mm-hmm. welfare, uh, various programs. Um, but yeah, that there was um, waves of struggle, of protests, of yeah. activism from disabled. Uh, activists in the 30s, you know, a lot of people who were a lot of disabled uh, workers, either from World War One, uh, who, you know, I mean, World War One was just, you know, as people, people they talk about it as like a meat grinder yeah. on a massive scale. People came back with just, you know, massive amounts of, of disabilities. Um, in addition to the the you know war zone of the uh, you know of of economic production, sure. which is a time before unions, before any legislation really at all. You know, child uh-huh. child labor. So I mean, there's just you know war at home and abroad. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, but a lot of the, a lot of people who came through the 20s and 30s to came to be influenced by the radical trade union movement, um, IWW, Socialist Party, Communist Party. Sure. Um, there were actually a number of really uh, amazing disability activist groups um, that formed and did protests and did sit-ins and went to the White House and occupied uh, the uh, occupied the lawn and occupied the um, I forget what it's called at the time, but the equivalent of the health yeah. uh, health and human services. Um, and this is in the in the twenties and thirties. Yeah, thirties when it really takes off. The biggest one. This group called the League of the Physically Handicapped mm. in New York City, and 
So part of the New Deal and part of the Works Progress Administration, one which was a, an important reform, yeah. but one major problem was that Roosevelt, who ironically also was uh, himself uh, had mobility impairment, yeah. you know, um, to, he took pains to hide it. Sure, but he used a wheelchair, <laughs> yeah. and um, but anyway, it was written into the legislation that it, um, the jobs programs, the 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 uh, New Deal programs, would uh, uh, only be open to uh, able-bodied person mm-hmm. so um what happened was there were a bunch of disabled uh people who were receiving uh meager pensions that were then available mm-hmm. um thought that that was uh unfair unjust yeah and so they would held they would hold protests at the local uh works progress administration offices oh, wow. uh, across new york city they did occupation sit-ins um dozens of them uh and they ended up getting support from the local Communist Party, unemployed worker, unemployed uh, union, um, you know, writers union. They yeah. was, um, demanding that they want to have access to some of these jobs, too. That They don't want to live off, you know, state charity, essentially. Sure. That they, you know, uh, had varying levels of education, had skills they could do. They wanted to, you know, if this if the state is going to be offering jobs to people and sort of, you know, you know, it's I mean, it's a broader discussion about the New Deal. But if right. there's an attempt to say that regardless of profitability, regardless of like maximizing, you know, extraction of surplus value, yeah. we want we think it's a right for people to have jobs and things like that. They were saying, well, we're, we want in on that. We're part <laughs> of that. Right. Um, and they won. They they forced the uh, at least in New York and in particular, they forced the WPA to start setting yeah. aside um, thousands of jobs specifically for disabled people. Yeah. Um, wow. And uh, what a huge victory. I mean, with, yeah, it's I mean, and it also strikes me as, you know, the last episode of Billings on Air we had on um, Billy Fleming. We were talking about the Green New Deal. Mm. And um, we I think I'm not sure if we talked about it directly, but, you know, we, we alluded to at least kind of some of the ways in which the New Deal was like absolutely like an amazing reform yeah. program that popped off so much activism. Um, but also we talked about some of the shortcomings mm. in, in regards like, in regards to all the ways in which the New Deal was sort of exclusionary. Um, and I think like as we think about the Green New Deal, it's really important to like r- open those history yeah. books, not just so we don't repeat the same right. mistakes, but also like when you look at, like mistakes will be made yeah. inevitably. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we're talking about um, ultimately like a reform happening in the context of the American political system. Right. And, and to get it right, it's going to take a continued movement yeah. to make sure like we, yeah. the space is opened. I'm sure whatever initial legislation passes will be infinitely better than ha- if it didn't. Right. <laughs> but 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 it's really inspiring to hear yeah. about the stories of a group that's that that p- pushed to reform the reforms yeah. and won. And yeah. I think that that's really really interesting l- sort of lesson to take to heart. I was we, actually going to yeah. point out that one of the early um, movements for the disabled happened after World War One too in Europe, and that was because so many men came home from the front. You know, ten percent right. of the population in, in some areas was was destroyed killed by the war and many people came home uh, missing limbs blind from shells and that was where you finally had some first appeals to mm-hmm. help the disabled that were outside of the kind of Victorian sweatshops mm-hmm. that, that Keith mentions so there was a bit of a um, 
pathway forward out of necessity, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I don't think maybe had existed before that we should also pay attention to, sure. uh, particularly in Scotland, where, where mm. uh, there was, you know, it's a much smaller population and, and as many as whole, whole towns had lost, you know, eligible age men. So women were going to factories. When men came back, uh, you know, they were missing limbs, they were blind, they also needed something to do. And so there was a, a rethinking at a governmental level of how do we yeah. integrate these people into the workforce? And it was completely based on money and capital. It's not <laughs> sugarcoated. Right. Mm-hmm. They, had, but, but, they had to figure out a way to yeah. reproduce. Yes, sort but of the, the deadliest war, uh, you know, in the world to that point was mm. was what motivated a rethinking of in part of what we consider disabled and right. unable to produce. So. Absolutely. I mean, along those. Yeah. And that I think also gives a sense how, again, thinking about disability as a political concept, you know, yeah. uh, you can assign someone a disability stat, a disabled status, mm. not something inherent. So, yeah, during World War Two in this country, um, Thousands of blind people were offered jobs in factories doing things that they could do with like tactile sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, deaf people were offered jobs. And um, so I think it throws out the notion that, well, you're, you know, you're considered disabled because you can't work. Yeah. Well, no, it's like I can't work on the basis that's basis that you're demanding. <laughs> right. I could work with. And that's the, uh, so that, you know, gets to the question of accommodations in the workplace. And yeah. The legislation and. um the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. And also, I think it ties back to something about, you know, with legislation that, you know, mistakes will be made. And I think that that's true. Um, I also think that, you know, we want to be conscious of a difference between mistakes and sort of like needless compromises or concessions. Sure. Right, right. Which often happens in this. Yeah, definitely. I, and uh, yeah, thanks for pointing that because it's, it's like one of the things that we talk about in the show all the time about how like, you know, when when it when it comes to like capitalism, it's not that all of the bad things are just like accidents. Usually, they're sort of they, they happen for a reason. Even yeah. if it's not sort of conspiratorial, it's it's sort of structural. Yeah. And, and in that sense, it's 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 no mistake at all. Yeah, I mean, the most glaring recent example is obviously with the Affordable Care Act. You know, aka Obamacare, and sure. giving up on you know public option and then giving up on, you know, one, th- I mean, just start, you know, compromising things away. But yeah. the ADA was definitely a case of that. Interesting. Yeah. The ADA started out very different, um, especially, well, I'll say this, what the disability activists had in mind started out very different so, from what we yeah, ended up what, getting. Which, so what did they have in mind? So one, so let, well, first with the, let's start just to say what the ADA yeah, is. Yeah, sure. When it comes to like, Access. Mm-hmm. Um, most of that doesn't come from the ADA originally. Actually, it comes from oh. the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Okay, which um, was uh, si- it was signed by Nixon. He was pressured to do it. Um, it. You know, coming out of the radicalization of the 60s, there mm-hmm. were a lot of uh, uh, activists, disability activists, and Vietnam veteran activists. So one thing there was a group called Disabled in Action that mm-hmm. formed. Um, that was a like radical militant direct action disability group, um, and they made some key alliances with uh, veterans groups, mm-hmm. and they did protests against Nixon. They did like a, I think it was at uh, I want to say uh, one of the he was giving some sort of uh, during the uh, seventy two reelection. Um, it was either at the debate or at uh, some press conference he was mm-hmm. giving. They like. You know, staged this huge like die-in protest, and they just dogged, you know, dogged him everywhere, and yeah, um, forced this legislation. Um, and uh, in '73, 
And it ultimately led to like one of the most successful and inspiring um, disability protests in U.S. history because he signed this legislation, um, which essentially stated that any uh, any institution, any you know that does business with the federal government that receives federal money, uh, has to be accessible. Mm. Um, and so that's that's really where that you know initial um, impetus comes from. Now, it was signed in '73, but um, uh, Nixon never followed through on, um, I guess, uh, like the enforcement of it. Yeah, implementing yeah. the like enforcement memorandum or whatever. Yeah. Um, and his term ended, and Carter was elected, and then Carter didn't enforce it either for about one or two years. So mm-hmm. in '78, uh, um, the uh, uh, there was a national call for disability groups to occupy the offices of uh, the Department of Health, uh, Education, and Welfare. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, all over the country, there were protests. In San Francisco, uh, a group of like 100, 200 disabled activists occupied the building, ended up staying in it, occupying it for 28 days. Um, They got massive support from the community. The uh, and a really expiring. I mean, they so they were getting donations from local labor unions mm. of like foodstuffs. The local chapter of the Black Panther Party yeah. would take the food and cook them like fresh hot meals every day and <laughs> smuggle it into the building. Um, there was a uh, so like gay radical group called the Butterfly Brigade uh-huh. um, that would help them uh, smuggle in like communiques and messages and walkie talkies. It was. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, tremendous. And. Uh, so yeah, it goes, the occupation lasts for 28 days, and they only end it when Carter finally issues the, uh, you know, the enforcement, you know, memorandum and yeah, um, huge victory. Yeah, um, no kidding. And uh, the ADA is so the ADA is actually uh, different. Than yeah, that. it's it's actually I mean the the uh, accessible um, building and public spaces as part of it, but yeah. the, the the major component that um, a lot of disabled activists were focusing on was the question of accommodation in the workplace. Sure. Um, which, um, you know, other countries, I mean, in Europe, we t- you know, uh, Jamie talked about in, uh, Europe and, uh, and most European countries have quota systems uh, f- in place for the hiring of disabled yeah. workers. So companies that have, you know, at least 50 or sometimes 100 have to have a certain percentage yeah, jobs filled by disabled people. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has nothing like that. The yeah. U.S. neither has that nor even affirmative action. Sure. Um, so what? Uh, you know, initially, that was the idea uh, amongst a lot of disabled activists who engaged in protests and civil disobedience and you know occupied the rotunda and the Capitol in the lead up to the passage of the ADA. Yeah. Um, and wanted some you know strong enforcement mechanisms. They wanted. Also, um, strong enforcement uh, protocols for, you know, ensuring non-discrimination mm-hmm. um, and accessibility in public spaces and yeah, sure. transportation. Um, <laughs> it ended up being yeah. very much not that watered down. Yeah. Inter- so, yeah, because the, so the original was not just can you get into the office or the factory right. or your house or whatever, but like, do you have a, a, a like a job and a exactly. quality of life once you get there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so. Um, yeah, so the ADA ended up being a. Um, it was written with all these loopholes, so mm. that it says that it calls upon employers to offer 
uh, reasonable accommodation. Now, the word reasonable is up yeah. for interpretation. Who considers what reasonable? Right. And then also it says as long as it doesn't uh, pose undue burden on the employer. Yeah, those are uh, two whopping gray areas. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's also no federal <laughs> enforcement yeah. mechanism to – Different from other civil rights legislation, mm. if if uh, if disabled person feels that discrimination has occurred, uh-huh. they have to bring an individual suit against the employer. Oh. Um, it's not a case of the federal government coming in and enforcing anything. They have sure. to bring individual suit to redress yeah. that. And that's um, and that's something I, I know we we talk. Um, a lot about sort of misclassification of employees as independent contractors on the show. That's an issue that affects the architectural workforce a great deal. But, you know, it's sort of like in the mainstream discourse where like Uber and Lyft drivers have Mm. this kind of issue. And it's a huge barrier to organizing because everyone is technically their own business. And so if you want to do anything, you have you have to hire a lawyer. And if you are uh, sort of uh, on on if if capitalism has rendered you on the bottom of its, you know, insane totem pole, then then you 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 can't do that. Right. It becomes a it becomes a a, a huge, huge barrier to overcome. Yeah. So I think on balance. um, So um, this uh, this, uh, person who's written a lot about this, who I uh, respect greatly, I think, is incredibly insightful. Is uh, Marta Russell, mm-hmm. who's disabled, disabled activist, socialist writer, um, and uh, whose writings I recently compiled into uh, a book sure. that I edited um, through uh, Haymarket Books. Yeah, um, Haymarket Books, uh, who are who are sponsoring the the Socialism exactly. Conference. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so her she levels very very very. Uh, uh, poignant criticisms of the ADA. Yeah. Um, I think, in terms of its uh, symbolic value, mm-hmm. in terms of um, raising consciousness and awareness, in terms of um, you know granting uh, yeah. uh, a degree of leverage sure. um, on a legislative and judicial level, I think. It was a hugely important reform mm-hmm. that wouldn't have happened without disabled people fighting for it. And um, but I think on the question of the living, the overall living conditions and employment and poverty statistics of disabled people, yeah, um, it's been an utter failure. Yeah, they were basically remained unchanged wow. from before. Um, unemployment levels remained have remained exactly the same. Yeah, basically from the mid to eight. Uh, mid to late 80s to now, poverty, homelessness, like the basic metrics of economic conditions and well-being have not changed yeah. in the least. Yeah. And in terms of the judicial record, um, it's been well documented uh, that cases brought by uh, plaintiffs, by ADA, by disabled people, mm-hmm. bringing suit against employers for um uh, for their firing or discrimination. Yeah. Um, uh, um, between the start of ADA and the present, um, employers have prevailed in 92% oh of goodness. cases brought. And um, one there's one, uh, one uh, law professor, Ruth Coker, who writes about this and basically uh, uh, says that the ADA case, that um, ADA cases have like the worst record of wins of any category other than like prisoner rights yeah. cases. 
um, because of the uh, loopholes that are written into what reasonable accommodations sure. and undue burden. Um, and I imagine there's plenty of industry groups, industry groups oh, who yeah. lobbied against the who put those loopholes in in the yeah. first place, are also probably keeping the pressure up by filing amicus briefs exactly. and things like this. Exactly. And the, yeah. So, and who who are those industry groups? Is well, so the so the ones who opposed it initially and continue to like Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. National Association of Manufacturers. Um, yeah, some of the uh, those are the those are the two that I can. Th- think of specifically yeah um but there are yeah um uh oh, what was it called heritage foundation i want to say yeah let's i mean there were just tanks. a number of think tanks cato institute there yeah number of think tanks but yeah a number of these <laughs> real real good dudes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> you know people you just want to have a beer yeah. with <laughs> airline industry um basically all you know all every major consortium of employers filed has filed amicus briefs or lobbied against the initial passage hmm. and have tried to uh, whittle it down, unfortunately, quite successfully mm-hmm. ever since. Um, but that does, yeah, that does get to the question of, um, again, something that Marta Russell talked about is this idea of when we talk about uh, addressing disability oppression, it's about going beyond ramps. You know, right. it's one thing to have a curb cut out. Which is important, yeah. You know, not only for people in wheelchairs, but people with strollers, people just whatever. You know, it's just a good idea right. to have those. <laughs> um, but that's yeah. you know, a question of <laughs> addressing like the massive misery, marginalization, devaluation, uh, impoverishment of, of disabled people is well beyond yeah. you know uh, these sort of uh, yeah curb cuts or ramps or things like that it Pain. has to get to the question of how our economy is organized and for whom and to what end and, right. you know yeah which is something we were talking about in the car a little bit cuz it was talking about you know how architects usually relate to the ADA and it is all about sort of the functionality and and and, yeah. and most of them view it as this sort of uh, you know, pain in the took is requirement, sure. yeah. which, um, which, which, <laughs> which is, it's, uh, I, I find kind of appalling mm. for a number of reasons, yeah. but like, I, you know, I think it's also important for, for those of us in the profession who sort of are, are, do think about yeah. sort of the importance of, right. of this kind of stuff to really think about like, not, no, it's not just about like, you know, is your architecture firm like, you know, fine designing a ramp or thinks it's a pain. Yeah. Like it's like what what are the workplace policies right. in your architecture yeah. office around right. this sort of stuff, yeah. right? And like how do you organize in the workplace for things like that? Like yeah. and, and thinking about that as a kind of uh, part of, of a holistic organizing around around this issue and yeah. a holistic approach to sort of how you think about these things as as, as structures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we. Uh we talked talked a little bit about this previously, yeah. but um, yeah, I I think that you know, I mean, I think that the way that disability rights have been framed by you know conservatives right. is similar to the way that other uh, rights and framed as like special interest. You mm-hmm. know that the, the you know we need to do these special thing a ramp or a uh, you know a automatic door. Um, that they're just sort of like, yeah, that it's a case of just like, yeah, you know, a lot special interest lobbying group. And um, even and even if we do it, it's sort of just uh, at, at best, it's like a, just a benign inconvenience. At worst, it's like a drain on <laughs> right. you know, my operating costs right. and, you know, et cetera. Um, 
but you know, but it's it's actually uh, it's it's much uh, well, it's different and it's much more than that, and that it strikes at the heart of the you know capitalist uh, system of organizing production and distribution itself, which uh, affects all working people, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I I I think that. You know, uh, Marta has this quote that's basically like, you know, capitalism is a system that forces uh, uh, people into the wage labor system of exploitation. Right. And it equally forces disabled people out. Right. Both have an interest in changing that arrangement. Right. And I think that's true. I think that those who are in the workforce, those who are out of the workforce, able-bodied, we all have an interest in... Um, rearranging how work is done in having a pace and of production a division of labor Mm -hmm. a control over the production process that can be more uh, uh, individualized and amenable to each individual worker so it's not just you know the the workers needing to adapt and accommodate themselves to to whatever the boss decides is going to be the standard, but rather to be able to adapt and accommodate the production process to the human laborers themselves. Right. And that, and that includes, uh, you know, enabling all who are able, who want to and engage in any productive labor in whatever capacity to be able to be part of that process. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, talk about the, the, like the, the right to dignity for all peoples. Right. And yeah. So, I mean, um, what, what, what kind of, um, Move, what's what's on the horizon now? Um, you know what what organizations are out there. What is kind of what what, what what's what's the terrain of the fight today? Mm. Well, I think one thing is definitely around healthcare. Mm. People may remember when uh, God, time is all messed up in my head. I don't know if it was a couple <laughs> months ago or a couple of years ago, but yeah. when Trump Trump had, uh, was trying to uh, abolish Obamacare completely, sure. including massive uh, cuts to Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Um, People may remember that there were disabled activists that confronted politicians and occupied offices and sat in. Some of the more inspiring images and stories. Yeah, and I think actually played a significant role in stopping that from going through. Um, uh, The group ADAPT is the sort of preeminent, more uh, radical, more direct action-oriented disability rights group mm-hmm. that's still around. They were they did a lot with that. Um, there are other local, more localized. That's a, you know, ADAPT is a national group. There are other more localized groups that can be found in various cities. Mm-hmm. I forget the one in Chicago. Um, it's got a catchy name. We've done work with them, but I, the name escapes me mm. at the moment. But um, yeah, stuff around healthcare definitely. Um, stuff around. Um, you know, expansion of uh, um, social security, disability, uh, income assistance, you know, these uh, uh, social safety net programs. Um, You know, historically, labor unions um, have been at the forefront of fights around disability legislation. Um, I can't say that that's necessarily on the horizon yeah. Uh, although I, uh, I think it should be, and sure. I, I would like to <laughs> hope that it will be. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's not. Unfortunately, I, I wish I could say that there was, you know, point people to, uh, you know, a uh, 
a, a movement in particular. Unfortunately, that that doesn't exist at present. Yeah. Um, hopefully, it will. Sure. You know, in the same way that we can hope that movements around, you know, against police violence and for you know uh, women. I mean, there's so many movements that, that yeah. don't exist that really, yeah. you know, would be great to yeah. see. I think disability rights is one of them. Um, I think as we talk about sort of a hopefully new and burgeoning socialist movement or left movement or progressive movement, I would certainly like to think that disability would be part of that. And I think that it should be because I do think that having a political analysis of disability in the way that I've talked about and the way that Marta talks about um, gives one a better understanding of the nature of labor relations and production and distribution Mm -hmm. under this particular economic system that we happen to live in yeah that will make us better activists and better fighters for these things yeah well that's just as good a place to wrap it up as any keith uh, tell what's the the title of the book is yeah title of the book is capitalism and disability selected writings by marta russell great and people can find more information about that on the haymarket books website haymarketbooks.org and you have a fantastic blog uh, in your own right what's what's the where can folks read that um so my blog is called joan of mark there's another joan of mark out there that is not <laughs> political that i found i think it's a band actually okay i don't yeah. know i haven't listened to any do you know right. them anyone, yeah, anyway. yeah. but mine is it's a political notice because it's political <laughs> uh, essay right joan of mark um, people may or may not Groovy. get that reference out there, but yeah. that's if you do, that's a little Easter egg for you, I guess. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Well, Keith Rosenthal, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, the Socialism Conference, it's going on for the rest of today and tomorrow, so folks can check that out too. Thanks again, Great. Keith. Thanks a lot. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, uh, and Buildings on Air, still the show where we talk about architecture, left politics, sometimes more of one, less of the other. And this is our regular segment, Fun and Angry. With Anjali Rao. I know, I've got to get you guys some theme music. you got to get us some theme I've music. I've been waiting for this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I hadn't really thought of about the theme music. I, I, yeah. I mean, we did we did the mailbag. The fun other. and angry, fun <laughs> and angry with Kiefer and Anjali. Okay, so you're next. just, just going to record that and, 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 and that's what's going to stand in until next. Do you, want to, do, you want to, do you want to start over? Do you want me to start with fun and angry, fun and angry with Anjali and Kiefer? Okay, go. All right. <laughs> so uh, what do we have on top today, Anjali? Um, well, uh, Kiefer and I, we tend to choose articles via text message about two weeks out. Uh, and so a couple of weeks ago, Kiefer accidentally sent me a urology ad, <laughs> yeah, um, which was an accidental text that was going to supposedly lead us into um, a piece in force uh, about parametric architecture, which um, we will sort of tear into nothing. Yeah. Um, I do want to say the, the piece is not, it's not a bad article. It's not, it's a good piece of writing. Uh, so props to Julian Vigo, uh, the, the author. And then we'll uh, jump into The Accidental Planners, which is a longer piece by Nate Berg in uh, Places Journal. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry for sending you. It was like one of those like sort of paid advertising articles <laughs> that like presents itself as like some very well thought out like report on research but it was yeah it was, t- it was about urology and I, it basically <laughs> because the Forbes website has become just like one giant like clickbaity sort of like you know whatever and I like 
copied and pasted something, and that's what it ended up being. What a surprise it was to get that, though. Yeah, and it's like, let's let's good. talk about this on Building Center. <laughs> yeah. <Sure>. Um, <laughs> architecture, left politics, European sports, urology. That's our... <laughs> Here we go. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the article, though, is, is titled Parametric Architecture's Embrace of New Technology. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I wanted to talk about it because I think it... It's it like it. I don't think it's like a unique contribution to the discourse amongst architects. Um, architects talk about parametricism all the time, and also I think there's a really healthy discourse about the kind of reactionary politics that surround parametricism. Um, and we've talked about that on the show before, but I, I always think it's. In, I think this is like a good example of how um, sort of architecture is getting put into like sort of non-architectural media, like what the image of the profession is to like a, a, a particular type of, of, of reader who doesn't know that much about architecture. And, and and for that reason, I thought it was maybe important to kind of like look at and discuss from, sure. from our kind of critical perspective. Definitely. And like while the conversation among architects has been, I'm sure, very full, rich and informed, um, the public, I think, think requires a little bit more context. Mm -hmm. And so I, I appreciate this as a piece of writing, kind of say like, this is what this means. This is what it can look like. Yeah. This is what historically um, the idea of like, uh, you know, not necessarily aesthetic driven architecture mm -hmm. and planning sort of has done. And he brings up Le Corbusier and um, his work in India and um, kind of what city planning has been able to accomplish using just sort of like data driven. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, di I did appreciate that it was wide ranging mm -hmm. um, in that way, but for me, it still fell into even even despite the kind of still fell into that trap of being like technology, computers, like progress, business, market solutions, just like yeah. buzzword, 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 it's buzzword, Forbes, buzzword. Man, it's Forbes. <laughs> I know, I know, but like for me, it's like when that and, and when when that is like the highlight, and when a guy like. Patrick Schumacher is sort of like being put at the forefront. Like, I, I mean, I, I think it's pretty, pretty indicative of, um, gosh, like, I, I don't, I don't know, just like how, you know, f how, even if we have like a really healthy discourse around these things, like, you know, the, the, really reactionary elements of architecture kind of get uplifted mm -hmm. by like, you know, get floated in, in the kind of, um, uh, discourse yeah so I guess we can kind of um, the, the piece sort of like the kicker is just like um, from the broader perspective of social engagement and even greater concern about technology is what precisely will be the final result of new text creative forays so he sort of kicks it off with um, chatting about Zaha Hadid architects and Patrick Schumacher mm -hmm. um, who has this like really amazing quote there he says I don't think we need to answer necessarily whether people like it that being the results of parametric architecture <laughs> um, whether people <laughs> like it right away or whether they buy into an aesthetic I think we need to be a, be market leaders yeah. and it's sort of like I don't yeah. I don't think that we should be using people's livelihoods as testing grounds, you know, <laughs> no. like no. just as a principal policy, like yeah. we should not be testing the quote unquote drugs of parametricism on yeah. the populace, the general populace. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think it's just you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, you know, for, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with the term parametricism or parametric architecture, basically it's a kind of – it's become a kind of catch-all phrase for a style uh, even now. But, but at its core what it means is architecture that is uh, generated through data. And so Patrick Schumacher ends up being this really problematic character because – I mean, and it gets quoted in this article as talking about – how um, you know the the kind of the future of architecture is going to be like objective data that gets kind of plugged in, and there's not going to be it's not going to be aestheticized or there's not going to be the humanities, and it's going to be this very objective thing. And um, but but like which which I always find very silly. Um, and, but it, ha- it gets a lot of currency with like all this obsession with big data. But it's it's totally easy to see that like no like if you you can select what data you put into these models, right? Like there's always going to be a kind of social, political, like human dimension to this. And if you pretend an objectivity, it's always just going to be pretend. And you, I mean, you really see that in the designs. Like the Zaha Hadid architects has produced all of these master plans for cities, and they're all like wibbly wobbly like sort of things that are like ostensibly produced using like objective data metrics but like okay one of data one objective metric for how we do architecture is that like buildings are made out of like straight flat things <laughs> like you know like wood beams like steel like these like things are like they 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 don't they don't naturally they're not wibbly wobbly you have to do some sort of very inefficient sort of magic to make it work like that which you might want to do but like let's like when you look at something like that and it's like pretends to be like objective efficient like market driven like you know I, I, I it's 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 bs even on its own sort of terms which which I think is really important to kind of call out. Yeah, and I mean, material materiality aside, I mean, I feel like there's a certain component of like, right, we all kind of like want to live in rational societies, but when you think about using something like um, data-generated information to design housing, right, right like we can't, we can't get rid of the notion that housing itself has like an, an unquantifiable emotional content right. to it that like yeah. we can do as many surveys as we want. Like what does what do homes mean to you? What does your house mean to you? What does it mean to feel quote unquote at home? But yeah. like how are we going to translate that into like usable data with which we will design like, you sure. know, mass quantities of affordable housing? And yeah. I don't believe that exists. Yeah. So, I mean, I, as someone who watches Star Trek a lot, um, <laughs> I I like to imagine that you know the the cities on Vulcan were very much designed using rational data like large data quantities, but no one wants that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I I I uh, to to quote a TV show I I don't understand the reference and I will not respond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to all my my fellow Trekkies out there, we don't want to live on Vulcan, do we? No. No, you want it's to live long and prosper. It's yeah. a good reference, okay? <laughs> Don't you. listen to him. It's a good Thank reference. You, I'm not saying that it's a bad reference. I'm just saying that I, it's one that I cannot share in. Uh, which, uh, yeah. We can talk about your Wookiee fascination later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so sad. Anyway, it's very tragic. Yeah. Um, I will say that there is like a reference to um, – you know, the idea that Le, Le Crucier has, who, by the way, is an incredibly problematic figure, and I wish people would stop referencing his work as, like, being, like, you know, super relevant. Um, yeah. It is relevant only in that he was, like, a predator. But, um, yeah, so 
just sort of like looking at this, the Albany, um, yeah. Albany, New York's like downtown area and about how critics just hated it. But it was sort of um, kind of riffing off of Le Corbusier's um, urban planning. Yeah, I did find, I, I don't know how purposeful the link was, but it, I do find it very appropriate that Corbusier and Schumacher are the kind of main figures of this article because Corbusier, Corbusier's famous proposal was it's either it's architecture or revolution, meaning yeah. that you're either going to build like good architecture for the masses, or they're going to rise up and take down the whole system because that because they demand it. And I, and Patrick Schumacher has like you know an even sort of more horrifically like uh, myopic view of 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 the world and and of norm of normal working class people, frankly, than yeah. than, than that, which is which I find utterly. Uh, Anyway. Yeah. Well, you look at Lupizier's work in in Northern Africa, and like, yeah. yeah, he may have believed that, but what he did is instead is removed the people from the equation, <laughs> you know, and like built them some suburbs outside, and then stole their historic architecture yes. to make it into a tourism yeah. capital. Some, somehow yeah. he of yeah, architecture or revolution, or actually this third thing, which is like something even worse. <laughs> we'll just remove yeah. the people from the equation yeah. and call it good. Yeah. Love the colors, though. Love his, love Corbusier's colors. Uh, we should move on yeah. because I, you know, we talk about Pat, Patrick Schumacher gets more than his fair share of attention. Um, <laughs> no more airtime. But Patrick. but 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 architects of the world, beware that this is how our profession is sort of being put out there, and, yeah. and we should endeavor to correct that. Yes. Um, this article is much more inspiring. Uh, the accidental planners, Nate Bird, places journal. Yeah. 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 So um, I really so my primary interest in this type of stuff is that like my expertise as a former art critic turned architecture journalist is I love the intersections of uh, practice like social practice and art um, with placemaking and and making place you know making spaces for humans to, mm-hmm. to work live um, and so I was really attracted to this piece um, mostly because I was I don't actually have any sort of understanding of um, what was going on in Berlin other than that there is a crisis of people not being able to actually afford yeah. to live there, people who have lived there for eons being evicted from their homes. And so this kind of like provides one case study in which um, the House of Statistics, um, which was an East Berlin giant building yeah. that was condemned to be torn down, um, was like occupied by um, some artists who sort of as a prank art project um, decided to like drop a giant banner from the building um, which just said like this building is going to become housing (laughs) and um, people were like the mayor like took note of it and met with these artists and it actually sort of allowed them to the city to buy this building back from you know to instead of tearing it down they decided to redevelop it themselves yeah um which is lovely right that's like such like an idyllic thing yeah that, like some like a bunch of like ragtag art kids go and like we're gonna we're gonna pretend like this is the world that we want and then you know the people yeah. with power take note and they're like okay well let's make let's let's work yeah. on it um yeah <laughs> i mean you know it makes me it, it made me think about how uh you know there, there's a lot of hagiography in architecture and a lot of it has to do with talking about architecture as this like uh, fundamentally about like being about the will like uh, the the will of a person or like to like persevere because buildings are like so hard to pull together they can be, you know it's a lot of capital investment like it's a lot of resources it's really hard to make a building so like this act of will like says something about our humanity and like 
I've, I've always treated that sort of uh, with a great deal of suspicion. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's a kernel of truth to it. It's like problematic when it's attached to like one heroic figure who's usually like I don't know, like some like old old guy, mm-hmm. uh, but like here when it's like the will is attached to like a bunch of weirdo activist artists, like it's it happens, right? Like I mean, they they had the will to kind of like do this and see this something different and follow through with it. At at any point, they could have abandoned this kind of effort, yeah. Um, but but they've they've sort of been able and willing to to hop in. Yeah, and I think, like, what I find really interesting about social practice as, like, an art form is that there's, like, this really weird, like, Eisensteinian thing about it, you know? Like, the idea that you have, like, a thesis and antithesis and you put them together and it makes a synthesis. Mm. And I feel like social practice artists are always sort of working in this realm of, like, um, the thesis is themselves as artists, the antithesis of themselves, of, of, like, of what they are as the state. Mm. And then when you kind of like put these things together, like what kind of thing can it make? What yeah. kind of um, movement can it build? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find this to be really kind of like a perfect <laughs> example of that um, in which sort of like the opposite of the of like the artist is working against the state, right? They're working against that thing. And then, it, but it kind of brought them together in this really interesting way. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, I, I love this because it just couldn't happen here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think yeah. about, and like there's this one line, I can't seem to find it, but he's talking about how like, usually what you see in this community planning process is you see like hard-headed preservationists and then like people who want to just like move forward with you know mm-hmm. like demolition and making the world better and putting up new buildings and um like meeting and like there's never really like there's never any continuity between them there's never any sort of like smoothness or softening between them yeah and this really was that right that like you have this the you know their final plan ended up preserving one of the main structures mm-hmm. adding several new buildings um and with this really long and very rich community it wasn't even, I don't want to call it community engagement it was like a participatory process yeah um created a plan for not a huge amount of square feet yeah. ultimately you know but um not a huge amount of the city but something that like people were able to you know even people they were one of the anecdotes is that even um you know the non-architect non-planning just the citizens um had opinions about where the garbage trucks could pull in <laughs> right you know like even to like that level yeah. Um, and it be, it started at the beginning and, and you know, continue, it's still ongoing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I have it here because I, I, I think it and it really speaks to kind of like what st- strategy should be used to like advocate for this kind of thing. And also, I mean, they're dealing with a build like a, de- a development, like an existing building of such a scale that it can accommodate a lot of stuff, which mm-hmm. was like also key to their this this sort of strategy. But um here we go. Uh, activists argue that luxury estate development was incompatible with a free and independent city that welcomed people of all generations, classes, and ethnicities. Uh, meanwhile, in the rest of Berlin, uh, rents continued to rise and longtime residents kept getting evicted. Um, and then this was the the Zusammenkunft. I, not, I don't speak German. To all of our German listeners, we apologize. Yeah. Z- J- Jamie, <laughs> what, is, what is this? You're trying it, to massacre? I, th- I think it's already like a kind of German. Zusammenkunft. Zusammenkunft. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. So, and I th- which I think is already like a German portmanteau of some kind. Um, yeah. It's it's. Mi- I actually think that it is slamming together uh, speed with art. Okay. Yeah. So. I mean, Kunst is art, right? Kunst is art. Kunft. So Kunft, 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 however, is 
art with uh, building. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. So there's Kunsthaus, yeah. which is, means uh, museum gallery. Okay. And Kunft, because uh, I know it's, um, you go buy furniture at uh, like a Badenkunft or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I just remember in Munich that you did that. All right. I never bought furniture in Germany, however. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. Fun, fun little personal fact. <laughs> Carry on. Thank you. Yeah, so, uh, but that that, that organization uh, was the kind of official, like the official co-op of the kind of community organizations uh, who, is, who established themselves as a formal cooperative. Um, and but, but they spoke to a wide range of social concerns. Uh, quote, we were shaping it in such a way that it was difficult for a politician to say no. Uh, almost impossible. You would be saying no to public housing, no to administration, no to education, and no to social infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so, like by by bringing in all of these constituencies together, they were able to really make a case where n- no one could like you know, hate hate on this thing, um, which I thought was was kind of really important. I mean, I also thought that one of one of the key moments in this piece that got a little bit under was when they were able to say we can secure a line of credit mm-hmm. and i think that that is like why like why this kind of thing would not happen in the us because the only sort of nonprofits that can secu- like secure a, a a line of credit in america are like not they're not like they might be doing like good work but like they're not participatory they're not like embedded in a community they're part of like a not-for-profit industrial complex right yeah the only state-owned developers we have really are like the gsa yeah what like the army corps of engineers and there's this whole middle ground of not-for-profit developers some of whom are better than the others but like real like if you look into them they a lot of a lot of them not all of them a lot of them are like super sketchy and like it's like they're like a not-for-profit shell corp that's masking a lot of really for-profit development and they're they're it's basically a way to kind of channel government grant money through to projects that would otherwise not be profitable. For sure. And, and, Here you know. in Chicago, did you read, there was a, a story in Block Club Chicago recently about um, the veterans housing in Humboldt Park. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the architect was Papa George Hames, um, developers, a nonprofit developer. Mm-hmm. And um, the story was pretty much like there are veterans, right? The, it's another situation where you can't say no to it. It's yeah. Puerto Rican veterans who are mostly have uh, a disability, emotional, physical, um, and they needed a place to live they needed affordable housing so yeah. it was it was an easy win right and then you know now they're veterans literally living in black mold infested apartments they're not maintained the developer um the management and developer are did not provide provide the services that were promised which mm-hmm. includes like a computer lab with internet access yeah um there was like a, a bad altercation with a tenant at one point so the com- the developer or the management company had to hire armed guards which when you put an armed guard in front of um, many individuals with PTSD, yeah. it can cause a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, and so I think about that and I'm like, well, that was a case where they could create significant buy-in yeah. um, and secure lines of credit. And, you know, of course, through the nonprofit developer. Yeah. And then these things weren't pro- – the promised stuff was not yeah. delivered. And then on top of that, like just gross negligence right. occurred. So I don't know. I mean – Certainly, we don't have that capacity. <laughs> well, no, and I and I think that that's an important part of the story. That's that's maybe in the background. Yeah, which is that like you know the reason why like they could be like this group of activists who are not like embedded in the not for profit industrial complex at all. Like could like go to the state. It was because they were you know good at rabble rousing and understood how to how to do that. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they could get the credit was because there's like a whole like cultural pressure 
like a, in a cultural acceptance of kind of like that mold of li- like of, of leftist organizing that's the result of not like one thing or one movement but decades of sort of the left being a presence mm-hmm. and that's something that we don't have in this country where even like you know like a bunch of like leftist activists like getting a bank loan is like always going to be like weird <laughs> like, yeah. like worthy of it and even even there they're like yeah like we didn't actually take the loan we just needed to prove that like you know one was possible to get mm-hmm. um and but like that's always going to be like a, a kind of tactical thing that should be totally debated but the fact that it was even like on the table in the first place i think speaks to like what what the kind of ephemeral what ephemeral things enable new possibilities ephemeral things that you only sort of uh, get after being present for for a long time and we and, and we're just starting to like rebuild that presence as a left in this country after decades yeah and then you also look at these individuals as artists right Mm -hmm. and like maybe there is something about the culture in Berlin that does give more credence or power to artists because here I think in the United States we have artists and creative people get invited to conferences (laughs) you know that's what we have conferences and it's you know incredibly disappointing I mean I think that like um and something that you know I, I try to champion especially in the architecture community is like architects have knowledge of you know, policies that fund buildings, why aren't they parts of policy conversations? Um, In the same way that artists have a deep understanding of uh, funding mechanisms and have also like a really interesting way of just like looking at and experiencing the world Mm -hmm. around them, why aren't they invited to have these conversations? And I think that like people-based planning is um, a very, very exciting. But now, I mean, you know, as, as I'm like looking at Twitter this morning, uh, you know, seeing like Alex Baca talking about how um, like community meetings are like like not as effective because most of this stuff is brought in baked. And right. Like when you go, I mean, for example, a C40 competition in Chicago, which I will bring up again and again because yeah. I want it to stop. Um, they essentially like did a competition, totally not transparent, no idea who's on the jury, um, no idea what how this project... It's an international being, competition. An international competition was being evaluated. We have no criterion for like what they were even looking for other than like quote-unquote sustainability. Yeah. And then they release a winning proposal, um, which is like Perkins and Will and Skender, and there's a nonprofit developer who I think is not based in the United States. And um, then they're like, this is quote, pending community engagement process. Pending. Pending. So like, of course, this, this thing will be approved once they engage the community, yeah. but not if they if they engage the yeah. community in a meaningful way yeah. and they receive feedback and tweak yeah. their design. Like they are, the, the community of East Garfield Park will be presented with a baked design yeah. proposal. And how are you supposed to fight that? Totally. And I and I, and I also think I'm, I'm a little bit wary of the opposite thing that happens a lot in mm-hmm. participatory development, which is like sometimes if like the... I think there's a tendency on like of left-leaning architects to overcompensate for like they they see that and they're like yeah that's the worst mm-hmm. <laughs> f that and then they overcompensate and they're like we're just going to go to the community and do what do whatever they want and it ends up being like the comment section yeah. on the internet and every any comment section you go to is the worst. So I like I think that there's like some there's like some level of like engaging the expertise like of of an architect that like should happen in in conjunction with the participatory planning process. And that's one of the th- reasons why I think this this kind of example that's being highlighted is so successful is because they 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 ha- they had in um uh Romlaber the kind of right 
architecture partners who are willing to engage in that process and be part of it. And like it's, it seems like the the balance was was sort of right of like thinking about and I think this goes with anything, right? Like it takes organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes organizing skills to say like this is the idea like we're gonna we're, that we're gonna we want to go forward with like here's why we think it's good now like let's talk about why it might be bad let's have a debate about it let's have a discussion about it in a meaningful way mm-hmm. um, versus ramming something down someone's throat exactly but, but, then going to like planning commission meetings and like you know having the preservationists up in arms yeah. and you know versus the people um, who you know, wake up one day and they're like, no, I, I want new buildings. <laughs> I want something new and shiny. Like, and those people just like ripping each other's heads off. I think it it's yeah. like so much. I mean, like they also, they had a liaison, right? That was, right. they had one person whose yeah. job it was to like immediately like run community meetings yeah. and then go back to developers who can't always be present. And like mm-hmm. they had this person with a designation yeah. and that was really, yeah. I think that's like really potent and something that isn't necessarily done and in Chicago for example is done through the alderman right right and like that's someone who their reputation and role is incredibly <laughs> tainted to begin with and they're like I'm gonna liaise yeah. between the architects like no man no. like we need someone who is like from the people to work like, sure. to actually like be that bridge yeah be that communicator right and it's yeah it's it's like the whose vision is it right and like um it seems really important that there is a vision to rally people behind that they can also engage in and mold Rather than just being like, hey, there's some buildings. Like, what do you think we should do? Because right? if that was how it started, then there wouldn't be this article. Well, right? there was, yeah, there was like the will of the artist, <laughs> yeah. you know, like their vision yeah. first. Yeah. And, and if it was, and if it was the will of the developer, then we know how we also wouldn't have this story. Yeah. No, it's cool and I and exciting and idyllic and. <sighs> yeah. You know, you just read it and then you get angry because yeah. you're like, I'll never have this. I, I think we will. I think we will. And I and I thank Nate Berg for bringing it to our attention. Yeah, hey, thanks, Nate. Also, great piece, generally it's speaking. Really well you know, written. sometimes Places really runs like too long of articles. Yeah. This one was like the, Just kind right. of a good length. Yeah, I like it. Felt good. Yeah. Good quotes. Government, yeah. architects, people. Yeah. That's great. We're doing a lot of Places Journal and Buildings in here. I'm not, I know. I'm not upset about it. I though. also, we really need to find, I mean, I'm going to call ourselves out on this. We haven't had really a lot of women writers. It's true. Um, yeah. So I, you know, we're going to try and expand our um, content base yes. a little better. Um, yeah. Sorry if, if, you know, we haven't been very expansive. And folks, send, send your suggestions in to Fun and Angry. Yeah, if you want some some Hit us up on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, right. Let us know. <laughs> uh, Anjali, thanks so much for, for uh, joining Billings thanks, on Air. Thanks, Keeper. Yeah. Hey, um, go USA tomorrow, 10 a.m. Tomorrow, 10 a.m. 10 a.m. Yeah. yeah. Fun and angry, fun and angry with <laughs> Anjali and Keeper. <laughs> Yes, it's the mailbag on Buildings on Air. That at least has a theme. I'm sorry. Yeah. I should, I should get, I'll get you a theme for the other segment. Yes, that would that. be great. Yeah, no. Buildings on Air. Uh, the mailbag. Uh, this is the segment where we answer your listener questions about buildings. Um, and I'm joined, as I am for most mailbags, by Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. Anne, Craig, how are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Doing great. Uh, we've got a lot of really good questions. Uh, but first of all, I have to correct a grave, grave, grave error. Uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> the the error is as as uh, Buildings on Air superfan mailbag devotee Rylan Auburn pointed out via email. Kiefer, I noticed your previous episode of the mailbag 
did not include a question on air conditioning. (laughs) 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 To address this supremely unfortunate deficiency, I would like to put the following question to your panel of esteemed experts. When the climate change bill comes due, how much will architects be on the hook for? Recall the multi-billion dollar lawsuits successfully brought against big tobacco companies in the 90s for damage to the public health. Is the architecture profession licensed to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public liable to similar legal prosecution strategies? Thanks for continuing to produce a brilliant show. Hmm. (laughs) Cheers, Rem. Screw the environment, hothouse. That's a good sign-off. Yes, 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 yes. That's that's an actually fascinating question. It is a fascinating question. It's one I had never considered before. But from from a legal point of view, I think there's a lawyer that is probably listening to this show that is (laughs) getting his tort right now ready to go. Because I think you could make a case. Now, just because you can make a case doesn't mean you can win, however. Yeah. Mm. I think the primary difference between big tobacco and architects is that big tobacco had lots of money and architects have none. Yeah. Well, I also (laughs) feel like there's – well, yeah, you wouldn't (laughs) sue an architect. Well, you you could – however, you could sue the insurers. I mean that's where you'd go for the money. You would sue the people that insure Professional liability insurance. Yeah, and and you'd sue developers. But I don't know if you could make the case that architects are responsible for air conditioning – and climate change because their clients demanded it. Yeah. Well, whereas tobacco, no one demanded it, and it was sold to people. <laughs> Actually, an interesting uh, case that happened in California, uh, SOM designed a series of condos that they didn't put air conditioning in in mm. San Francisco, and they said, you know, because of the operable windows, because of the climate, we don't need air conditioning in this building. Yeah. So the developer kind of bought that and said, okay, this is a good sustainable thing. Let's do this and move forward. Um, and then they sold all the condos and then the condo association turned around and sued the architect for not including air conditioning. Right. Um, and it was one of the first times that, uh, uh, someone that did not have a contractual relationship with the architect was able to sue an architect. Yeah. I mean, we're held to this thing called the standard of care. And I think that that's one, which is, I mean, going back, we were talking with Keith about this, the slipperiness of this legal, like reasonable, (laughs) like what would a reasonable person do? Like reasonable is like this really slippery legal slope. Um, I think This American Life did a great uh, episode on (laughs) like the the history of reasonable in like, Mm. you know, legal terms. Uh, But like, you know, the standard is what would any reasonable architect have done under similar circumstances? circumstances. And I think that that would be used as a kind of shield against something like this. Um, I also think with the big tobacco, like a big part of it was like they like they knew that their product was killing people and they like actively like sought to like hide that. And that like that that like that I think was part of the law. I'm not I'm not aware. Yeah, it is. But I mean, counter to that, you could say it's we know that buildings are being built with materials that actively cause harm. There's materials that are listed in the state of California that cause cancer. Mm -hmm. You could say that we know that putting too much um, yeah. of this or that into a building or into the atmosphere from our air conditioning is also harming our pl- our clients. It's I think it's a question though of whether um, who who has standing to sue. You know what I mean? Right. And can you convince uh, a judge and a grand jury of this along multiple appellate levels? Yeah. Because you'd have to you'd have to file it as a class action lawsuit against probably every architect insurer. You know what I mean? From a legal point of view. And then you'd have to go after the insurers, not the architects. And in in that case, I mean, I think then you're getting into actuarial tables, which is basically <laughs> how all insurance companies settle lawsuits. Interesting. I guess I'm, 
I and I don't really have a coherent thought on this. I think this is like such an interesting question, but it feels like um, there's something about um, architects kind of being on the back foot since the professionalization of architecture in like yeah. the last 50 to 100 years. Like, I guess I, I think many architects have a sense that like, you know, the kind of standardization of like AIA contracts through like ongoing, ongoing kind of summits with kind of representatives of contractors and um I guess I, I, I guess I'm the bigger question I'm trying to ask, though I'm mumbling to get there, is to ask like how can we get architects to think about kind of proactive work against climate change without having it be at the risk of being sued, right? Like <laughs> I, I, I guess I feel like um, architects are like constantly trying to to protect ourselves against like one thing or another litigiously, but there yeah. needs to be kind of like a pivot from being on the back foot to being on the kind of you know, bleeding edge. Yeah. And I think that that is like a change, a mindset that's really yeah. hard to change. Like h- how do we, instead of saying like, oh yeah, like we, we, we aren't actually responsible for this because it's like client like, X, Y, or Z, but how do we become like proactive? Yeah. And I, I guess that's like a question also. For I you. think it's a good question. I mean, yeah. I think that you have to be proactive about naming the enemy, right? Cause right. I mean like, you know, a lot of architects end up being complicit by like, right. by, by not doing that. Right. And just being like, I'm, I am subject to this system, right. which is true, but like not figuring out a way to like f- kind of figure out exactly precisely what it is. Well, it's so, already like making an argument from a position of defensiveness, right? So right. like that's what I kind of want to say. Like, how can we like circumnavigate that, right? So instead of saying like, are we going to be oh, sued? Yeah, it should be yeah. like, who would should we be suing in order to like put ourselves in? It? I yeah. mean, I, the standards like, agencies. Like, yeah. I mean, like, and and <laughs> the standards agencies, but like because that for me, like that's the arena where like the power of industry right yeah. and and the, the power of these like big ephemeral groups who we you know we call it like the system like them like whatever yeah, like yeah. the like but like the, they're they're real tangible like things yeah, exactly. people like, and 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 they inf- their influence is exerted on the standards uh-huh. and and so for me like delving into that like it's a little bit technocratic but like that 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 is the arena where this kind of power struggle is playing out and i think where lawsuits could well, and I happen think and be craig effective. and i ask about this all the time like instead of saying like are we going to be sued for not following the energy code i think it should be like why aren't we suing chicago for not reviewing for the energy code right you know like of course it is cheapest for our clients and like best for our practice if we're able to give everybody the exposed brick wall they want but like I think we need to uh, it feels to me like there needs to be a shift in kind of how we're asking that question well and this is what the industry group should be doing right this is what the AIA should be doing and the fact that they haven't is why groups like the architectural lobby exist Um, but I think that that is the right the right framing yeah that's really interesting I I guess I do think that Air conditioning should not be the kind of bogeyman, though, for this conversation. Yeah, that's true. Heating buildings takes far more energy than cooling buildings. If I mean, you look kind of globally. Global, right? glo- okay. So, yeah. like, we think of air conditioning as a luxury because in Chicago's climate, in many cases, it is. Mm-hmm. Some, in some Chicago summers, it's not. And in many kind of places around the world, air conditioning is also not a luxury. It's, right. Uh, something that is keeping you alive through hot temperatures in the same way heat keeps us alive through yeah. sub-zero temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think a lot of the Green New Deal, I hope, changes this. And I mm-hmm. hope that, like, I mean, I think all of this is indicative of, like, the failure of the market 
to like d- deliver on like <laughs> ensuring the public health, safety, and welfare. Yeah. Like you know, I mean, and and the kind of regulatory frameworks that we do have, which are totally based on uh, the private sector essentially regulating itself, um, are have have fallen grossly short of of where they need to be. Um, from I don't know, maybe. Eventually, eventually, I'll get sick of saying that on this show. <laughs> like 60, 70 years or something. <laughs> That's uh, what Buildings on Air is yeah. for. It's a space for you to say those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I've got quite their questions, though. Are you guys ready for some fun questions? Only we, if they're about air conditioning. You don't want to say something about <laughs> energy in a different way? I, I feel like this is coming up. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's my comment about heating versus yeah. cooling. Like, the... The, like what the energy is used for is not as problematic as how the energy is made. Like what, it's it's yeah. a it's a math problem, right? Like where are we putting numbers in one column or another column? Sure. And it, then it's also uh, a quality discussion that we need to be aligning types of energy with uh, or qualities of energy with kind of quality of need. So like right. using high quality electricity to produce heat is a really dumb use of high quality electricity. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that there's also, we need to have like a better understanding of energy systems Yeah. in order to, um, in order to kind of uh, right. understand the, um, how we should shape the Green New Deal. And I think it's not always about using less, it's sometimes just about using things in smarter ways. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's interesting to think about the forces that keep that from happening. Like big insulation. <laughs> the <laughs> door lobby. The door lobby. <laughs> this wouldn't be a mailbag if there, we weren't going after big insulation. <laughs> oh, big insulation. Um, next question. What is happening with the huge building in Chicago that used to be the post office? Who owns it now and what's in it? Oh, I think we know this. <laughs> it's going to be yeah. office space. I'm yeah. not sure which developer bought it. Yeah, um, a consortium of. It suits. went through many. It went through many hands before it actually became uh, or went under redevelopment. But yeah. I think the most interesting thing about it is that there's a huge demand for office space on very large floor plates, like the post office has. Interesting, because the. Uh, kind of corporations used to align themselves across uh, floors of towers, right? Right. Like, so accounting would be on one floor and uh, HR on another (laughs) floor or whatever. Um, And the, like, kind of uh, current thinking around office design is that it's better if everyone's in one space, but it's very hard to find buildings now that have floor plates of that depth. Yeah. So the Hmm. post office is one of the kind of last last ones being redeveloped. That That is interesting. I have no additional information yeah. about this. <laughs> I just I, I just remember uh, there was when there was like a bunch architects were making a bunch of proposals for this space, yeah. trying to like, you know, get get some money. And John to like, Ronan w- wanted to make it a columbarium. Which yeah, was actually an excellent proposal. It's a really <laughs> very, good really project. beautiful. Go, yeah, yeah, it's just like a giant like you know building full of uh, dead folks, which mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> well, <laughs> we should have John Ronan on for the Halloween edition of Buildings on Air. <laughs> there was a really that that project even had this like uh, nice idea about 
uh, like funeral processions coming down the river and yeah. then like people's ashes being offloaded. You should have him on the show, but he can only talk about failed or funeral projects. He yeah. can't talk about any active or future projects. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, next question. Most cities I've been to have a weird skyscraper with no windows. What are those for? I was going to say it's a data center, but actually so many data centers are in buildings that actually have windows and facade glass and, like, seem, appear on the outside to be so, like, totally normal, so... uh, There's, I think, two options. One is that it's a telephone switching station, Mm -hmm. so, like, across from uh, the Northwestern Terminal. I forget the name of that building, but basically where all the Northwest Metro trains come in, there is a very tall tower that is uh, totally uh, solid up until, like, except for the top couple floors. And I think that that's a telephone switching station. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it's used for now because I don't think there's that many people with telephone lines. Um, But the... There's uh, there's one in the South Loop, too, at, like, Congress and Dearborn-ish, if you're listening in Chicago. Mm. And then there's also a few around Chicago that are... um, District heating, district heating and cooling. But yeah. they're not really tall. The district heating and cooling in Chicago, like the one above the CVS on yeah. uh, State, is like not that uh, tall. Yeah. The mm-hmm. one that's by the Congress but it's like entry. Six, There's six an stores. AT&T building in New York that is like genuinely skyscraper mm. sized. Mm. It's kind of, I think it featured prominently in um, yeah, but that Mr. Was an old, Robot. That was yeah. an old switching station. Yeah, it's an yeah. old it's switching now station. now a data center yeah. for them. So, yeah. Yeah. I, well, and, in, and I know a lot of the reason why they built them so tall and in the places they did was because they uh, the long distance phone lines used to work with like, I, I was it microwaves or some sort of where they had to have line of sight between a bunch of different like that satellite would be microwaves, microwaves, yes. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So like they would, it, which was kind of amazing mm-hmm. that you would have like line of sight between towers like all across the country, right? Like it's kind of like like a weird like you know. Well, that's actually it's like Lord of the Rings, like signal fire, sort of <laughs> like in the twenty first century. That's just mm-hmm. physics cool. and math, though. Actually, yeah. most radio stations are line of sight. Most people don't know this, but when we send our signals up from Lumpen, it goes to a microwave antenna and then it's beamed to our tower. Ah. And almost every FM radio station does it the same way. You have to have line of sight to your tower, um, which is why so many radio antennas are on top of giant buildings because you get a good line of sight to where your transmission tower is because you're shooting over everything. There's a reason why it's high in the air. It's to get that line of sight with microwave transmission. The Lings on Air, powered by microwaves. Can we go and, like, build something in between the country station and the tower that is over oh, well, is overlapping. This unfortunately, <laughs> that is that is caused by something called Lake Michigan. <laughs> uh, coming, the evil one hundred five point five is coming hot over the lake. <laughs> but it is also caused in this particular area by the fact that we don't have what's called a as a low power station. We don't have an FM repeater in our area, and because of St. Mary's Perpetual Help which is a large church that actually sits about, what, a half block away from Morgan Street Studios, that casts a shadow over our reception area because our tower is in, is in Douglas Saint Park. St. Mary of Perpetual, <laughs> no <always>. help. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's one of the reasons why we... So if, if the funny thing is with, with us, if you go further south, like to Lamont or Darien, you get great signals even through the Forest Preserve. But um, once you cross 31st, because of the church and the, the metallic shadow it casts, uh, it does interfere with our radio signal. And we are working on that. But, no, most most stations actually still use microwave transmission. It's it's one of the few places you can see that kind of antique technology. Because yeah. mm-hmm. radio, of course, is the uh, the burgeoning uh, medium of the 1970s, as we like to say here on <laughs> London Radio. Yeah. Metallic Shadow is a good name for a band. It is. Uh, We've got yeah. a couple of those today. Ban- Banham, Banham Woods' favorite Bor- metal Borum band. Wood. Borum Woods' <laughs> favorite metal band. <laughs> Metallic Shadow. Uh-huh. 
Uh, next question. When putting down vinyl plank or hardwood, to- uh, hardwood flooring in a hallway, do you put it lengthwise or widthwise? Mm. Whatever you want. The world the is w- yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was thinking about this, and I've pretty much only ever seen it lengthwise, I mm. realized. And my house is lengthwise. Um, and I and I think it would probably look like a <laughs> like a pier or something well, if it was widthwise. Yeah, you have to cut wise. more boards. Yeah, you have to cut yeah. more boards the short way. But like whatever, you know, whatever your heart yeah, desires, it, yeah, you know, yeah. go for it. Yeah. yeah. All right. N- nobody else yeah, has strong aesthetic uh, opinions on this. I have a pretty <laughs> s- strong aesthetic opinion on lengthwise, but I have no real reason to back that up. <laughs> what about like an ashlar pattern that is going both directions? Oh, a little herringbone in there? Yeah. yeah. I think it would wear worse, actually, uh, widthwise. Yeah. Because you'd be. You'd have more. Yeah, you'd tramping over the seams more. You'd be like against the grain all the time yeah, as you walked. Yeah. Hmm. Potentially easier Jamie, to fix. pick up your feet when you walk. Don't, <laughs> Don't you tell me what to do, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when planning a kitchen remodel, what do you need to know about cabinets and countertops? They're very expensive. Oh my expensive. god, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I sense three kitchen traumatized people in the room. Um, I think that we have actually gained uh, more knowledge about kitchens in the past two or three years than we expected to gain. I guess I would say you have a certain amount of money and then with that amount of money you, <laughs> you can get it on a diff- fire <laughs> <laughs> yeah then you prepare to flush it down the toilet um, no i think that you can get different grades of customization right yeah. so at the at the highest end you can get um really fancy uh totally custom millwork and at the low end you can get an ikea cabinet um and then there's like a whole a world in between though sometimes i think the middle is cheaper than ikea when it comes down to it yeah <clears throat> well we've um lately been doing some custom cabinets in a couple kitchens that have turned out really well and they're basically from a company that does like all of the kitchens for condo skyscrapers Mm -hmm. so they're really efficient at doing kind of layouts and they can't do kind of really custom things like a custom mill worker could Mm. but it's nice that they can get all of the cabinets kind of fit the space that you have which i think is important in a renovation the worst thing is when you go to like uh, Home Depot, and you just buy like standard twenty-four inch cabinets, and then you have like a weird gap at the end of your counter, and yeah. the the doors are ugly. And... I guess it's like when Craig and I were first buying insurance for a really weird public art project. I was like, "What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens?" And the insurance agent basically said to me, "Like, how much money do you have? I'll get you as much insurance as possible for that amount of money." And that's how I feel about cabinets. Like, don't get into the weeds of all the things you think you want because it's too complicated. Just figure out how much money you have for the cabinets and then buy the nicest cabinets you can have for that yeah. amount of money. Yeah. Uh, other important things, they come in three inch increments. Yeah, unless they're yeah. from a mill worker. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, but uh, okay, unless you have $20,000 for a mill worker. Yeah, well, they can well, get that's mill not that's $20,000 is like not that much for cabinets. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's what, it, you should. Yeah, I mean, the the what you're looking at for cabinets is between what sixteen and forty, probably. Yeah, yeah these days, uh, if yeah. you want actual cabinets that work and last, I mean, yeah. I I actually don't think IKEA cabinets are that horrible. No, they're not. They're not. They're nice. You know, they're they're well made and they're, you know, kind of yeah. hit on by people, but they. Truth is, I mean, there's so much dross. If you go to a Menards or a Lowe's or a Home Depot, there's a lot of garbage up there that's made out of press board and fiber board that really isn't going to last. In a way, you're better to try to recycle cabinets if you can. If you have like a rebuilding exchange or something in the area and you can go and get older cabinets that um, pre-1970 that may need some TLC, probably need some new hardware, need a paint job. But they're going to last you a lot longer than 
yeah. cabinets that you can buy on the shelf today. There's also, I mean, there's companies now that have like the sort of cell upgrades to the IKEA systems, which is kind of interesting. Super front, yeah, yeah. puts yeah. new fronts on it. The, but it, okay. the problem that we've run into though with the IKEA cabinets is that the cost of the cabinet is very low, and it's a very high quality cabinet. I think they're really yeah. nice, but what we can never make work is that for the contractor to install them. His right. cost of labor right now is so high that it basically <laughs> yeah. erases any of the. Yeah, you're getting like savings. a highly skilled carpenter to like put together IKEA, yeah. <laughs> which yeah, is exactly. like does not seem yeah. like an efficient. Yeah, we we've we've solved this problem in, in a project where we basically had the contractor break that out and as a as an item, and like basically the rough in the plumbing and the client is going to kind of who's, who's who feels comfortable being handy is like doing the install themselves, and so like that way you don't have that problem yeah 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 um yep if your client client can install cabinets then they are in a different different league yes a yeah. league of their own dream they're in the dream client league cabinets is really hard it's yeah. not it's not easy yeah. no it's yeah. not it's not easy at all so. it's so tricky i mean w yeah. especially in existing buildings I, craig and i have been you know yeah. back and forth to because you know, nothing's square, nothing square. It's not level. Learn... The filler panel never is exactly yeah. right. The leveling yeah. is such a pain. You learn scribing is a real art. The yeah, um, yeah. no, it's the, a pain. Yeah. This pain kitchen that we're working on right now, though the um, the cabinets are all in, and now they're doing um, the countertops. Yeah, and we actually the client went to Home Depot because they could like beat every price. And the um, the guy that came out to measure didn't actually use a tape measure. He had set up a, a laser scanner, and he basically scans oh, wow. the whole kitchen and then does exact measurements from that. Very interesting. Hmm. Which made us very jealous after, you know, the past four years of, like, crawling around in different people's homes <laughs> trying to measure everything from scratch. Yeah. I did hear, you know, speaking about the expense, like, in used cabinets, I did hear that in um, – places in Europe, it's not uncommon for people to take their kitchens with them when they move. Uh, uh, I don't know. Or at least that historically. I don't know about that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, I, I don't, I can't speak to any personal experience I've had with that. Taking like your kitchen appliances, I think is, is not uncommon, but mm. uh, I don't, I don't remember any members of my family. I mean, we're Scottish, so they certainly could have done this. <laughs> Let me just qualify. <laughs> they could have taken the cabinets with them, but I don't remember them doing yeah. that. Uh, next question. When and why did ivy become a popular way to decorate a building? <laughs> when Frank Lloyd Wright said it's the best way to cover up mistakes. <laughs> really? I, I, didn't know. Uh, I mean, I think it has to go like the romantics, right? Like romantic, the, the whole stones of I mean, Venice. Ivy, ivy sort grows of. on buildings everywhere. It's English. I mean, you know. Yeah, everywhere where you're from, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, we, we, you know, I have ivy on my house here yeah, in Chicago. Yeah. So. You yeah. do have ivy on your house yes, here in Chicago. Yes, I do have ivy yeah. on my house, yes. It's not really it's, good for your brick, by the yeah, way. It's no, yeah, it's bad, bad for, for the brick. Yeah. But and but otherwise, but good for good for cooling down your building and keeping temperatures under control yeah. in the in the summer. Yeah, well, listen to buildings on air for this one trick that big insulation does not want you to know. <laughs> it's called ivy. Ivy. Yeah, yeah. we're gonna get another cube of pink stuff in the mail. <laughs> but the tuck pointers do want you to know because they keep them in business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's you know it flowers uh, the the leaves the leaves pop out in the in the summer keep everything nice and shady and then go away in the winter and let that sunlight in yeah 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like it does go back to like the whole like you know all these architects in the 17th and 18th century would go on these grand tours and they were like obsessed with ruins and like uh, this sort of like very mm-hmm. like o- like overgrown ruins to the extent where you know they made buildings that look like ruins. There's a whole like amazing. Mm-hmm. History, histories on follies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I feel like it's 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 attached to that in some way. Mm-hmm. Someone should do a PhD on Ivy, is what I'm <laughs> suggesting. I'm sure Ivy someone. Does. I think yeah, it just right. it just grows like a weed <laughs> in Scotland and England. You know, if you got some ivy around, it's going to grow yeah, in your building. That's yeah. you know. Yeah, I think it's less complicated. Uh, next question. Um, let's see here. If everyone on a skyscraper, here we go. Or is this okay? If everyone in a skyscraper ran from one side of the building to the other at the same time, would the building sway? I the think building. probably. The building's always swaying in a yeah. tall tower. Yeah. Mm. building would already be swaying. Yeah, already say, swaying. When yeah. is the building not swaying? <laughs> this in, is the, mar- the Marxist position on this. Is the, the building is always already swaying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's also the structural argument. <laughs> the, if they ran opposite the way the building was swaying because of the wind, they would basically be like a damper at the top of the skyscraper, right. which is right. what's usually installed to make people less nauseous in tall buildings. Yeah. 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 It's all buildings. If, if a building is too rigid, it's like, then, then you have invoke a whole other host of problems. In fact, Uh, the new, um, time capsule that SOM did for, uh, Hancock is like a kind of suspended, uh, capsule with whatever's in it, but like they've weighted it in such a way that you can read the building moving around the capsule, which is like fixed in space. Mm-hmm. And it actually apparently is like really nausea inducing because like the kind of effect of it is that you at first perceive the kind of object to be moving and then you perceive the space around you to be moving in turn. Yeah. Uh, you see That's a wonderful object. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> um, let's see here. This is, this is, I think, an interesting and pertinent question. And a very earnest one. Uh, we've t- we've talked about it on the show a little bit before, but like, you know, um, well, before I jump into the context, I'll just ask the question: How's it? What is, what is so great about brutalist architecture? <laughs> I think it's called heroic these days. <laughs> Do you guys? Uh, how about nothing? How about nothing? Nothing is great about it. Um, having having grown up in in very sad looking brutalist architecture in England and Scotland. Absolutely nothing is great about it. I, I'm a big fan. I got to say, Jamie, not a big fan. I think there's lots of like brutalist architecture stands out there. And I'm not a stan, but I'm not a hater either. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. Not, I can tell you why I'm not fond of it. Go for it. Because most of the buildings that were built around council estates and county estates in England mm. and Scotland were put on like little islands. And while the, the building itself was monumental, it just led the yeah. feeling of the people who were in the building being cut off from the rest of society. And that caused more problems than the building actually was trying to solve. A classic example of this is the Robin Hood Estates in mm-hmm. 1972 mm-hmm. in England, which was uh, recently torn down, actually. Smithsons. Yep. Uh, and they had a very um, interesting and holistic view of why they were doing this building and why they were doing this estate, and, and they were trying to solve real problems. You yeah. know what I mean? But they made some decisions, um, including with dimly lit corridors and putting up hills to discourage ball playing. All that just increased the, and it was around, motorways were around it, so it, it increased the feeling of, you know, you're on this giant, uncaring spaceship in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. 
I mean, but I I, I, think, I wonder though if that's about the architecture and let. Um, I mean, I think that there's a, a history of kind of urban planning that is attached to these buildings, uh, and a lot of times it is the same people. But like for me, I, I wonder how like the architectural ideas and the, the the buildings themselves are usually less the issue than the urban planning or the the maintenance funds that get attached to the buildings. Um, I, I mean, I think that there's at least an argument to be had there. I, I hear what you're saying because I mean, I mean, I I, the buildings of IMP that eat up at Syracuse University are absolutely yeah. atrocious. The library there was <laughs> unusable and it leaked. And I know the Everson Museum has held up as one of his great accomplishments. It was a, just a horrible building to go into. Yeah. And I look at the brutalist architecture that was done at the University of Connecticut, which I spent a lot of time on. It's really like off-putting. Yeah. You know, you don't feel like you're at a place that's welcoming or nice. Yeah. It's all about the building, and that's not really what. It shouldn't be all about the building. Yeah. It should be about the space you're in mm -hmm. and what you're trying to do in that space. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. in that particular space, it was the University of Connecticut. It was supposed to be a place where you went and got a degree. Mm -hmm. And instead, you're like, wow, this is a really cruddy, cold-feeling campus <laughs> in a cold state on the middle of a dairy farm. Mm. Wow, this stinks. Yeah. And that, that that's something, actually, the university has never been able to shake. It's really hurt them. I spent five years in a brutalist building studying architecture in undergrad, Same. and it yeah. was, you know, like heaven. And in grad. <laughs> Yeah, and, same. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I the think grad, the grad one leaks I, more, I, but I mean, I think <laughs> they it's both leak. For, all good architecture. Yeah, leak. all good. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, for me, that it is an interesting question about like I think I mean, because I, I the the brutalist building that I went to Georgia Tech for my undergrad, and I, and there are two wings. One was a kind of like. The, literally like the Bauhaus building, but like rendered in like Georgia, like red clay brick. <laughs> and it was, which was kind of amazing. And the other wing was this kind of brutalist building. But what was maybe different about it was that it was, it was oriented around a really big internal courtyard that was like a really amazing social space that was like had a very lively section where you could see people around and it, it really breathed a lot of life into the space. And I know, I know some gunned hall is similar right where you can kind of there are visual connections and like um with the like knoxville that. the knoxville building is amazing it's so incredible yeah. but it is also organized around a very big atrium okay. and i but yeah. I, th I think for me like these are good buildings and i and i and i always wonder and there's lots of bad bad buildings and like i and i and I, for me i'm always curious like how brutalism as a style is like i mean like i, I don't know i wonder if you did a breakdown it's like are there more like the proportion of bad buildings to good buildings like is that more in brutalism or is it like the same but we just like notice it more because it's so they're so aggressive like as structures like i you know um mm -hmm. i don't know like i want like i wonder how that math actually mm -hmm. breaks down if that makes sense I, I, that's plus I think how do you measure that's a good way to think about it yeah yeah, yeah. I don't know. Sorry, I talked a lot. You guys no, no, look no. there as the experts. But I was I, gonna say I think that there's like a slightly psychopathic ambition to brutalism that I admire and uh, feel <laughs> alarmed by. Like I'm thinking about the yeah. architects behind the Boston City Hall who said like if we could have made the light switches out of concrete, we would have. And it's funny. I, we were at the yeah. Ozinga Concrete Lab actually last week because we're collaborating with them, and I told them that story. And one of the guys was like, "We did do a light switch out of concrete." I was like, "Oh, gift yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> we'll use it on our project." Um, there's yeah, I, there's a kind of there's a beauty in that kind of thinking about a plastic material that is um, like can, can can be applied in kind of really transcendently different ways. But I, I of course also see like the kind of negative effects of it. On uh, especially in the moment when brutalism was growing and rising. Yeah. I think there's also, for me, there's something about the construction of it that, like, the 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 wall section is a chunk of concrete, right? right? It is not 
uh, a cladding and then a rack holding that cladding and then one type of insulation and then gypsum board and so it has like a kind of uh, a stereotomic yeah. yeah monolithic quality Mono- and, yeah. and 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 by virtue of that it's about the space and not the kind of image i mean i think like which which i is a quality that i appreciate in architecture but like i i do i mean i do think that one of the reasons why i think this is an interesting question is because brutalism has become this boogeyman for like you know like for for frankly like public investment for a lot of the reasons that Jamie has brought up and i think that you know so so one of my impulses as a kind of like lefty is to always be like no like it's it was like fine actually or like it wasn't like the the build like the buildings or it was like this lack of investment like systemic lack of investment or like the urban planning ideas which were attached to like really horrific ideas of slum clearance mm-hmm. like I, I mean like there's complex histories there that i that i that i always want to like in, engage in some way um like but but i also think at some level you kind of have to be like no like you're you you yeah like like these are not always good buildings to live in and like it doesn't like that does not indict like the whole idea of social or public housing right yeah and i mean i think robin hood's a great example of that you know the idea yeah. of so especially in in england scotland which is a huge history of you know town owned buildings mm-hmm. you know they they replace those buildings with with uh, two and three family yeah. flats and i mean there's there's the uh, the parisian style of building which i'm completely blanking on but that is coming back in vogue in, in England as well, those kind of three-story kind of monumental buildings mm-hmm. that go around a, a center street. You see them in Munich and Paris. I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but those are now coming into vogue. And the, the question of affordable housing is obviously critical. It's yeah. critical in this city. It's critical in most of our major cities, but ne- not necessarily a solvable problem by putting people on an island, because I think that's what those buildings did. And we see yeah. that in our own city with the Robert Taylor homes and mm-hmm. Cabrini Green. Mm-hmm. And we saw that in New York City. So I think that while your point about, you know, there wasn't a lot of maintenance budget or this and that and the other, yeah. those that's all true. But the building yeah. itself also um, yeah, had a psychological. To me. It wasn't, but it had and a. Robert no, Taylor but and it, they had, though, that's the fact that it was so set yeah. apart had that effect on I'm mean, just like being nitpicky because I think what Kiefer is saying is that sometimes like brutalism becomes a kind of aesthetic style to which we like peg the kind of yeah, failures well, of a good public housing and urban renewal, yeah. right? But actually, like sometimes like yeah. those two were have like separate histories that sometimes do intersect and yeah. kind of like potent and yeah. problematic ways and we, sometimes don't. Right? We should do, yeah, we yeah. should dedicate we should dedicate a whole episode to it I think. I mean to cuz cuz I think it's a really fascinating discussion. I mean, I know that like I think about um the Bertrand Goldberg Towers, uh-huh, and uh-huh. I know we had, uh, we were just talking about um, uh, Maya, I always say Duksimova, but I can never get the, what, how do you? Tomaskova? Yes, who wrote a fantastic article in the reader called the Goldberg Variations, which mm. he came on the show mm. to discuss. And I mean, like the the Bertrand Goldberg, what's, what are they called? It's the, now it's uh, elderly Section 8 housing. Oh, by um, Chinatown? By Chinatown. I yeah. forget what it was called oh, yeah. when it was built. But like for that, that's a, a hugely successful housing project and rendered in in concrete. Um, and I and I wonder if we would think about that as brutalism or not. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, it's got lots of beautiful trees around it. Uh, they just did a Chicago brutalism brutalist map that Eker was part of. You should get him on and grill him. Yeah, we'll have we'll get Eker on and grill him. We'll have Jamie uh, take a look and do a <laughs> hot or not. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> with a sound effect for each building. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. terrific. Well, uh, I think that's all the time we have for this month's buildings on air. Uh, oh, thanks gotta, for listening. Theme, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. There we go. There we go.
Okay, okay. Worked really hard on that theme. Yeah, we got it. Ann and Craig, thanks so much for for joining us. And um, thanks to all of our guests for this month's Buildings on Air. Uh, We'll uh, catch you again in August. Thank you, Producer Jamie. You got it. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.